I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. After a couple of weeks of being out of the book of 1 Peter, we return this morning and we come now to the last section of our study of the Petrine Doctrine of Submission. And because it has been some time since we have been in 1 Peter, I want us to read together 1 Peter chapter 2, going through chapter 3 and verse 12. 1 Peter 2.13 Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, and not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. And while suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior." Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. 
You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you remember from our previous messages on the biblical theme of submission, the word submit itself means to line up oneself underneath someone else or some others who are in authority over us. For instance, as we just read, if we are a citizen in a country, and of course all of us are, we're given the words in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, that we are commanded to submit ourselves to the government God has placed over us. Secondly, according to 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25, Christian workers, that would be employees in our present context, are called upon to submit, to line ourselves up under our earthly masters or our employers. Thirdly, when we come to chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, Christian wives are commanded to submit to their husband, even as an unsaved husband might be in the home. And if need be, for the purpose, of course, that God would ultimately bring glory to Himself, we are, if we are a Christian wife, submitting ourselves to an unsaved husband to do that for His glory and honor. Further, we husbands, husbands of the Christian faith, while we're not called upon necessarily here by way of command to submit to our wives, that of course would not be appropriate in that day or even in our own because of our duty to lead the church and home, are nevertheless commanded to live with our wives in an understanding way, living with them, knowing them, protecting them, caring for them, and granting them honor because of our mutually equal relationship with our common Lord, Jesus Christ. And that's what we have been discussing. That's what we have been learning. That's what Peter has been teaching us in this section on submission. And now this morning, we come to the end of this section on submission from 1 Peter 2 and 3. And the Lord brings us this very morning to the text of 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 12, and our mutual submission to one another. Now, someone might immediately object and say something like this, I thought you just said that Christian husbands and men in general are not to submit to women. And, of course, that would be true. Yes, I did say that. I did say that a Christian husband is not commanded to submit to his wife, for that, of course, would 
overturn the authority structure in the home and in the society. That's true. But there is a sense in which we're all mutually submitting to one another. Now, it may not be in the sense that we are submitting by lining ourselves up underneath each other, for if we were to do that, then there would be nobody at the head. If everybody was lining themselves up underneath someone else, there would be no someone else, because we'd all be mutually lining ourselves up underneath no one. And so obviously, there is an authority. There is someone who's always in the lead. There's someone who we may always line ourselves up underneath. And so I'm not talking about submission now in that very specific definition, but submission in a very general sense. Maybe the word submission itself is not the best word. Maybe according to verses 8 to 12 of 1 Peter 3, it's love. It's love. It's a mutual submission by way of love. Loving one another. You see, we all, whether we are brothers or sisters in Christ, we are all in Christ. And if we know Christ, we're to love one another. And in a sense, that's our mutual submission. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul could say in Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There's a mutuality in our love and support for one another. And what Paul is saying in that text, Ephesians 5.21, and what Peter is commanding here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-12, to are in a sense very parallel. There is a sort of generic submission which is to take place within the greater body of Christ regardless of gender. And while that particular word conjures up the idea of someone in the lead, someone as an authority, and someone underneath, there is also a sense in submission that we are to undergo as Christians so that we might love one another and serve one another. If you think of it, when we are commanded in Scripture to be humble toward one another, or frankly, when, li- when living any of the so-called one another's of the New Testament, we are called upon to submit to the will of another. We're to subjugate our will to the will of others. We're to become other-centered, not self-centered. We're to respond to the needs of others. That's really what I'm talking about this morning when I talk about our mutual submission to one another. Peter wants to end his teaching on submission with what we might call the most generic or the most general exhortations he can. Speaking to the entire contingent of believers, especially believers who are suffering, suffering at the hands of a bad government, and that there is to be nonetheless a mutual submission, a one-anothering in the body of Christ. And even though he does not use the word submission here in verses 8 to 12, this is clearly the last series of exhortations in this section on submission. And that is why I've entitled the message this morning, Our Mutual Submission to One Another. It's like the statement, frankly, in 1 Peter 3, 7, to the husbands. 
He, he's not commanded to submit to his wife, but he is commanded to live with his wife in an understanding way, to love his wife, to know her, to protect her, to guard her and to honor her. That's a form of submission to be sure. That's what the Christian community should be all about. Yes, we have an authority structure. Yes, we have people over us. And yes, others of us submit to those who are in authority over us. But we all have the command and the responsibility to love and to defer and to serve one another. But since Peter has placed these exhortations here in this specific section at the end of the submission-themed section of this epistle, we take it up now under that heading. And so with that as an introduction, what does Peter therefore call Christians to do here in this text in verses 8 to 12? Listen again. To sum up, he says, or finally, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What's Peter driving at here? When he says to sum up or finally, he's driving at one idea, one concept really, the one central focus, and it is this, relationships. Relationships. That's what he's talking about. And if there is anything that will come out of our time this morning, it is that idea of our relationship with one another. You'll hear that coming through loud and clear all through the sermon this morning. Relationships, beloved, are everything. They're everything. You could boil down indeed the Christian life, Christianity itself, by saying it is a religion of relationship. It is. First, we must have a right relationship with God. And then a relationship with fellow human beings. Especially in our context, a relationship of fellow human beings in the Christian life within the body of Christ. And what I've just done is to give you the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God. That's a relationship, a relationship of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's relationship. Love God. Have a loving relationship with God. Receive His love. And love other people and receive their love. And that is why it's a seriously flawed description for someone to say, well, I'm just not a relational person. If you're not a relational person, then you're not a person. Because we all relate to one another. Now, it could be that some people relate poorly 
toward other people, and that's probably what they mean. But it's incorrect to say, I'm not a relational person. That's, that's a contradiction in terms. Every person relates to other people. Persons are relational beings. And within the context of Christianity, as I said, the two great commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor, if you're not a relational person, you're not a Christian. Because you relate to God. He relates to you. You relate to other people. They relate to you. Why? Because God Himself is relational. There is a relationship even within the Godhead themselves. Three distinct yet inseparable persons who commune with one another. They relate to one another. They enjoy the perfections of one another within the Godhead. And God has a relationship with His creatures. And we have a relationship with each other in the body of Christ. And Peter is bringing that question to its climax. You see, all that he said up to this point by way of submission is that we are in relationship to one another. There is a submissive relationship to one another. And here he says, by way of some general exhortations, I want to sum up what is the relationship that ought to be occurring between yourselves in this suffering body of Christ. We could say it like this. I'm in an indissoluble relationship with one another. It will never dissolve. Even when I die and go to heaven, I'll be in relationship with God and with fellow believers. And there, of course, it will be glorious because there'll be no sin. It'll be a perfect, indissoluble relationship. Now, yes, I'm aware that the Bible speaks of false brethren among the church, the wheat among the tares. Yes, it's true that not every one of us is related to each other savingly. There are many people, in fact, I would dare say almost everybody in the room would say, I profess allegiance to Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I love Christ. And therefore, I'm in relationship to God and with my fellow brothers and sisters here in Christ. Yes, I'm aware that there are false brethren. There are people who aren't really in relationship with Christ. I know that. I know that's what the Bible teaches. But I'm not referring to that, and neither is Peter. He's referring to those who are in genuine, dynamic relationship with each other as true brothers and sisters in Christ. That's his assumption. And with that assumption in mind, he wants to give specifics on how we relate to one another. Because you see, it's not just enough to say we are in relationship with one another. Yes, it is indicative of us that if we're truly and genuinely in Christ, we are, by virtue of our relationship with Christ, in relationship with each other. Yes, that's true. But Peter wants us to tell, wants to tell us this is how you relate to one another. It's not the, it's not the statement of fact. It's the statement of direction. It's the statement of purpose. It's the statement of motivation that concerns Peter here. I want to tell you how to relate to one another. And he gives us six of them in verses 8 to 12. Six ways to relate to one another in the body of Christ. Uh, six means to enhance relationships in the body of Christ. 
Six ways to see the relationship in the body of Christ enhanced with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to talk about five of them today because they are all given to us in verse 8 and then verse 9 next time, which I think probably because of the theme of suffering that comes right on the heels of this matter of submission is probably, verse 9, a reference to the idea of suffering evil and insult from non-Christians, from those outside the faith. Surely we do experience evil and insult and sin within the body of Christ, and we're to respond in the very same way, Peter tells us in verse 9, toward outsiders. But I think primarily verse 9 is referring to outsiders, and so we'll leave that off for next time. In verse 8, He's telling us how to relate to one another within the body of Christ. And the first relational component in our mutual love and submission to one another is that we are to be harmonious toward one another. You see it there in the first part of chapter 3, verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious. Now, before I define that word harmonious for you biblically, you see why I believe Peter is linking these exhortations which he's about to give us with what he's stated thus far, because he says there to sum up. You see, when you're a studier of the Bible, you don't throw away phrases like that. You study them in their context and in detail, and you find out that he's obviously linking what he has just said or maybe even all that he has said thus far in his letter by saying to sum up. To sum up, or finally. So he's linking it with that which has gone before. And there's a second thing I notice here, and that is that Peter is very, being very inclusive in these general exhortations. He's not just singling out Christian citizens who are suffering in a bad government. He's not just talking about servants or slaves who are to report in an authority relationship to their earthly masters. He's not just singling out a Christian wife and her duty to submit herself to her husband, especially an unsaved man, and he's not just singling out a Christian husband and his duty toward his wife. He's now inclusive. He's, he's including everybody to sum up all of you, all of you. He's talking to everybody within earshot. I want all of you to listen. And, and you know, if there was a, a temptation in these previous messages on submission for someone to say, well, I'm a young person and I'm not working any anywhere, so I'm not in a submissive relationship to an earthly employer, so I tune out. Or someone who's single who says, well, I'm not a Christian wife or a Christian husband, and so therefore all of these previous teachings are not for me. I can zone out, or I can go to the, the cabin, or I can do this, or I can go away, or I can tune out. Well, this is a message for everyone. All of you, he says, in the body of Christ, be harmonious. What does it mean? What does it mean to be harmonious. Well, it's to me, it means to have unity with one another. Some of your translations may even say to be unified or have unity in spirit. Or maybe this word is better. I like it. 
It is to be like-minded. Like-minded with one another. It means to have the same mind. And boy, right off the bat, Peter is giving an exhortation that is so very difficult. You ever realized how difficult it is to have not just two people, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in a local church to be like-minded with one another? It's one thing to be like-minded with people in your own home, which is in and of itself a great challenge. But to be like-minded with hundreds and hundreds of other people? That is a gargantuan challenge. Why? Because of our sinfulness. Because of our own desires. Because of our selfishness. We don't want to be like-minded or... I should say, yes, if, ever, if everyone would be like my mind, we'd be okay. If everyone would think the way I think, if everyone would do things the way I do, if everyone would logically process elements of conversation or decisions or conclusions or situations and scenarios, then everything would be peachy keen. If everyone would be like my mind, we'd get along really well. Well, Peter is saying we ought to be like-minded, yes, but it's not to your mind or my mind. It's to the mind of the Spirit of God. It's, it's to be like Jesus Christ. It's to be like-minded with Him. And this is a very general exhortation that's given to us several times in the Word of God. Look over at the Apostle Paul's very similar words in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, 16. He says, in fact, even using the form of the same word here, Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind or like-minded toward one another. Chapter 15, verse 5. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you, listen to this, to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. And aren't you appreciative that he, that he says there, according to Christ Jesus? Being of the same mind. Not that everybody has to think like you or me, but we're all of the same mind according to Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. This is what he tells the Corinthians. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, be harmonious. You remember the same exhortation in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent, on one purpose. He even says in chapter 4, verse 2, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Be harmonious with each other. There was apparently a cat fight in the Philippians church. And Euodia and Syntyche were fighting with one another. And Paul says, you women live in harmony in the Lord. Ask yourself the question, in what ways, in what tangible ways, Am I endeavoring to be like-minded with one another in the Bible church of Little Rock? 
What tangible ways am I endeavoring to be like-minded with one another in the Bible church of Little Rock? Do I have that mindset? Do I continually think of ways I can be of the same mind toward my fellow members of the body of Christ? And doesn't that speak of selflessness? I have to, I have to put away the things that I'd rather do, the ways that I'd rather go, for the sake of other people and the way they're going. You say, well, wait a minute. Why should I put away my way of thinking and my way of doing things for the sake of someone else's way of doing things? I thought that they were supposed to be serving me. Well, yes, they're supposed to be serving you. And when that exhortation comes to them, they will be selfless. And when the exhortation comes to you, you will be selfless. And when the exhortation comes to all of us, then all of us will be selfless. And then no one will be pursuing his own course. And then we'll be united in spirit and we'll be intent on one purpose. That's what it means to be harmonious with one another. Are there ways that I am pursuing a unity of spirit with the brethren? Harmony is such a wonderful word to use in the translation of this Greek word because when you think of harmony, or at least I do, you think of harmony in music, don't you? Are you bringing dissonance in the spiritual music of the church or are you bringing sweet melody and sweet harmony? When there's conflict, when there's a different way of doing things, when someone says, I think we ought to do it this way, do you search the Scripture? Do you endeavor to try to see their perspective? Do you want them to be unified with you even if that means the death of your own view? That's what he means when he says, summing up, we are to be harmonious toward one another. Secondly, we are also to be sympathetic toward one another. That's the second relational dynamic that Peter speaks of here. Sympathy. And it's interesting that the very English word that we use, sympathy, comes as a transliterated reality off that word. It is sympathis. Sympathy. We're to be sympathetic. It means a mutual caring, a mutual understanding of one another's needs. It's the placing of yourself outside of yourself and acting and reacting as though you were that other person that you're ministering to. That's what it means. To be sympathetic towards someone is that you are trying with all of your heart to step outside of yourself into the shoes of another person so that you might minister to them and care for them. That's what it means. That's sympathy. Now, someone would say, well, sympathy is that I, I see what other people are going through and I rejoice with them when they're rejoicing. I weep with them when they're weeping. But empathy is when I myself actually go through it. Well, that's maybe an English articulation of the two words and, and English understanding. The Greek has none. It says sympathy is you're caring and you're loving as though you are that person yourself and you're going through it. That's what you need to do. You need to place yourself as though you were going through the same trial, the same test, the same situation as that person is so that when you are saying to yourself, boy, I wish someone would reach out to me. I wish someone would minister to me. I need help. I need someone to come alongside me. You can then transfer that to that person's situation and say, hmm, 
That's what I need to do to them. I need to come alongside them. I know that they're hurting. I know that they need me. They, they need my services. They need my care. They need my love. I need to place myself in their situation. And therefore, I know they would want that help. And so I'm going to reach out and try to help them. I love what Edmund Clowney says. The love that binds the body of Christ together not only seeks the other's good, but enters into the other's needs and concerns. Did you hear that? It's not only the seeking of others' good, but enters into the other's needs and concerns. He says, such identification begins in the heart, but is seen often enough in the event. What event? The event of helping that person. It starts in the heart and then it moves itself into action when you're attempting to place yourself. You're identifying with this person. I know you're hurting. I know you need care and I'm going to help you. And I know that sympathy looks either like support or care or concern or love or good deeds or help or all of those. That's what Jesus did. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was a high priest, but he was also one who sympathizes, same family of words, with us and our needs. He's our great sympathizer. He comes alongside. That's what Paul says, Romans twelve fifteen. Be sympathetic toward one another. How does he say that? What, what is the context? Well, I quoted it for you a moment ago. We're to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we're also to weep with those who weep. That's what it means to be sympathetic towards someone else. The old adage, I feel their pain, might do here. I understand. I, I know where you're coming from. Now, often that may mean I know where you're coming from because I've either been there in the past or I assume I'm going there in the future. And that may be true, but it's also, even if you've never gone through what that person is suffering from, it is your sympathetic outreach to them to go to them and minister to them in any way you can, even if you personally haven't gone through such an experience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for instance, verse 26, the Bible says this, And if one member suffers, notice that indissolubility here, that indivisibility, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I'm sympathetic. I come alongside in a trial when that's necessary. I come alongside and rejoice with you when rejoicing is appropriate. I'm sympathetic. Are you Sympathetic with one another? Do you work hard to be in relationship with other people? You say, well, I have a family. I have a job. I have a lot of things going on. I have a very, very busy life. Well, evaluate your life. Ask yourself the question, am I doing good things, but am I doing the things that are only speaking of my relationship with others outside the Bible Church of Little Rock? Am I involved in ministry here? Am I involved in the relationships in which I share a common membership? Am I looking to others to meet their needs? 
Uh, Do I call the church office and ask, are there any needs to be met? Do I approach a pastor, an elder, a deacon? Do I say to one another, how are you? Can I meet your needs? Can I drive something to you? Can I take something with me to someone else? Can I minister to you? Can I pray with you? Can I minister to you in some way that, that none of us may even see as presently defined? That's what sympathy means. Thirdly, Peter says... We are also to be loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see the third relational component there? He says, not just being harmonious, not just being sympathetic, but brotherly. Philadelphia. You remember Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, although as I've heard, they say it up there, if you're a native, the city of brotherly shove. Brother lover. That's what it means. Brother lover. I love fellow members of the body of Christ. I mean, when's the last time you said to yourself, I love so-and-so? I mean, I really, really love them. It's not your family. It's not someone even that's easily lovable. It's someone maybe who isn't easily lovable. Someone who's a a new creature in Christ. Someone who's immature. Someone who does things that are annoying. I even heard recently someone was quoted as saying, I hate so-and-so, referring to someone else in the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that has no place in the body of Christ. None whatsoever. We're, We're guilty of of condemnation, of, of judgment, of, of chastisement if we speak and believe and act in such ways. Here, Peter says, we are to be a brother lover. A brother lover. You say, well, what kind of love? Look at chapter 2. Do you remember verse in chapter 2 that speaks of a love? It speaks of a graciousness. I'm sorry, chapter 1. Verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. A sincere love. Ah, now we're now we're coming closer. It's an adjectival definition. It's a sincere love. It's not this amorphous, obscure kind of love. It's not one that gets me off the hook where I can say, sure, I love people. Sure, I'm a relational kind of guy. This says that I, in obedience to the truth, have seen my soul purified for for the very purpose so that I might now, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, sincerely love them. And then he adds, fervently loving one another from the heart. You see, it's not just external. I love you deeply. I said this morning to... Some of our guests that were sitting directly behind me and one of our members introduced me to his parents and I just automatically said because it was in my heart, I want you to know that I love your son. I love him. I love my fellow members of the body of Christ and I love them most principally by serving them. And in my case, by studying and preaching and teaching to them and counseling them and coming alongside them. Just uh, the other day, 
our dear Pastor James Henrich had some eye surgery, and he has been for the last several days, about a week total, I think from about Thursday to Tuesday, has been at his home with some eye surgery and has been unable to see until the surgery has corrected the problem and they are able to see it heal. He hasn't been able to see. And so he called the other day and said, do you have some tapes for me to listen to? I don't want to just sit around. I want to listen. And I've listened to every tape I have in my house. And he knows that I have a stash of John MacArthur tapes. And so I said, most certainly. And so I grabbed up about eight albums of tapes. And I took them over there and I said, here's here's the tapes for you. And it was an opportunity to love him. It was an opportunity to serve him. And what sacrifice was that? It was nothing. It may be something far more magnanimous than that. It may be you staying up all night with someone. It may be that you are displaced from your home because someone else needs to stay in your home. It may be that you need to give your car to someone else. It may be that you need to to give something that's very valuable away from you to them. Whatever that is, it may be some act of self-sacrifice on your part for them. Do you love them? Do you love them? You remember chapter 2, verse 17? Honor all people, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Boy, I wish it would be said of the Bible church of Little Rock like it was said, does Paul to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, listen to what Paul says, you have no need for anyone to write to you For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. We don't need to teach you about love. You know that from God's own teaching itself. You know that God has taught you to love one another. And when I see you practicing it, all I need to say is excel still more. Just, Just take it to the next zenith. Uh, Just take it to the next plateau. Boy, I wish it would be here that we would say, look, we don't need any more money. We don't need any more service. We We don't need any more love. You are loving us far too much here. Right? But I don't think we're going to arrive there anytime soon because there's always someone else to love. There's always something else to do to serve one another. That's why Hebrews 13.1 says, continue to love the brethren. Continue to do it. And I've just given you a few paltry examples of what it means to love. It can be filled out in so many other ways. But the question is, do you love one another? You realize that the greatest expression of love toward one another is to spend time with them. It's to spend time with them. That's the greatest expression. Now, it may not be that it always equals time spent with them. You can encourage someone with a card. You can call someone on the phone. But guess what? You're spending time when you do that. You may not have to be in their presence, but you're spending time loving other people. I heard someone say, and I think it's very accurate, time is the proof of the love we have. Time is the proof of the love that we have. And it's not just our 
physical family. We need to love them. We need to spend time with them. But we are called even to a greater responsibility, and that is to love fellow members of the body of Christ that actually, listen to this, transcends your own personal family. Transcends that. You say, how can that transcend that? Isn't my family priority number one? Only in part. It's one and one A. Because... Your family, your physical family, as much as you love them and as much as you want to spend time with them, you will not know them as your family in heaven. You'll not know them as your family in heaven. There's no indication in God's Word that we will have our physical family as we do now in this life in heaven. No indication of that. In fact, there's indication otherwise that we in heaven will all be related to one another, not as physical family, but as spiritual family. And that's why I say it transcends the physical family. So the time that you take in ministering to one another in the body of Christ, even the time that that takes away from your own family, is time well invested because you are fulfilling the dictates of what Peter says here, and that is be a brother lover. Number four, we are to be kind-hearted toward one another. Now, some of your Bibles may say compassionate, and that's good. Certainly a synonym of being kind-hearted. Speaks of the emotions, speaks of the feelings of the heart. You say, well, how can you say that? You've even said on other occasions that we need to watch out for the word feelings. Well, we do. But this is talking about the whole range of the inward part of a person. In fact, the very word splanknon, which sounds terrible, doesn't it? That Greek word, splanknon, doesn't sound like something you want. It sounds like a disease to be avoided. But this particular word, splanknon, in the family of words, literally means the inward parts. The heart, the liver, the lungs, etc. And it describes the internal reality of a person at the deepest level. It's the, it's the deepest, most feeling-oriented, sympathetic, compassionate, harmonious love level that you can possibly think or experience. That's what he's saying. That's the word. It has to do with your affections. It has to do with mercy and pity. I wish we had time to go through it. But in, for instance, the gospel accounts with Jesus in Matthew 9 and chapter 14 and so many other passages, Mark 141, Mark 634, it speaks of Jesus being moved with compassion. That means his inward parts, literally his bowels, the, the deepest recesses of his thinking processes were moved with pity, compassion, Mercy. Matthew 9, for instance, and other places, he, he looked out on the multitude and he saw either that they were physically or spiritually in need. And it says that Jesus, being moved with compassion, reached out to them. He, he, he had a movement within his bowels. His, his, his inmost parts were coming to a place of an upheaval because he had such love and compassion and mercy for people. Is that the kind of mercy you have? And that's probably why this idea of kind-hearted really doesn't do justice 
to splank none. It really doesn't do justice to that word. It is talking about a word that says you are moved at the very deepest part of the core of your being. Do you have that kind of compassion for people? Is that, is that you when you think about the body of Christ? Where I think of so-and-so, and it's not just what they're going through and the problems they're experiencing, but what I can do to help them. How I can reach out to them. I am moved, in fact, to tears. I am moved with the feeling, the sense, the emotion that God has within me in the deepest part of the recesses of my soul a motivation to help one another. See, it's far more than just, well, I'm, I'm a kind-hearted kind of person. I just want to be kind to people. I heard the other day someone was witnessing to someone else who doesn't know the Lord and uh, by reputation is apparently not kind to one another. And when this person asked them about their eternal destiny and how they might be able to be right with God, the person said, well, I, I'm just kind to everybody. I'm just kind to everybody, which was a shock to those workers around them. But that can be no basis, no basis whatsoever, not only for our eternal destiny, but even for the kind of compassion that is spoken about by Peter here. It's the kind of compassion that moves me to action. You say, well, that's tiring. That's a lot of work. Look at Jesus. There were times, beloved, when Jesus worked so hard to the point of utter exhaustion that He could sleep even in the strongest storm. Right? It, it talked about the multitudes being crowded around Jesus to the extent that no one could even move. And He just person after person after person healed them, met with them, talked with them, taught them ministered to them. Why? Because the Bible says He was moved with compassion. And then finally, number five, we are humble toward one another. We are to be very sure and to be very precise in what Peter says you must be harmonious, sympathetic, brother, lovers, compassionate, and Humble in spirit. Tapinos, lowly of mind. It was even borrowed, I think, originally from a word that then they made a metaphor from because the original word meant that you were brought low, low to the ground, uh, that you were physically taken to the bottom. Low lying is literally the word, low lying lying low. That's the kind of humility that Peter is talking about here. A person who is low to the ground. Not physically, but spiritually. Someone who is being brought low. Lowly minded. If he says like-minded earlier, here he says lowly minded. And you know what he's really saying is, it's you not thinking of yourself. It's thinking of others. It's to be like-minded. I'm minded toward others' minds. And I'm lowly-minded. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about others. I'm thinking about God. I think this is probably the idea of Proverbs 29-23 that speaks maybe even of this, this very idea of being low to the ground when it talks about this 
low-mindedness. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23, the Bible says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And doesn't even the New Testament say, if you humble yourself, implied, bringing yourself low, then God will what? Exalt you at the proper time. If if God brings you low, that's a good thing. And if then God raises you up, it's because you were brought low first. So when Peter tells the church, even the suffering church, I want you to be, first of all, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly loving, to be compassionate or merciful, and to be humble, to be brought low. That is a very tall order, is it not? It just fights against everything we are. It fights against everything that we do. Because we are most of the time, if truth be told, involved in the serving of ourselves. How many times have you heard either from your children or thought the thought yourself, but what's in this for me? But, but, but what am I going to get out of this? Well, how does this help me? What, what, what can I gain from this? Instead of what Peter is commanding here, what can I do to give myself away? What can I do to serve others? What can I do to bring others into the kingdom? What can I do to serve others in the body of Christ? What does God want from me toward other people? You see, it is very, very other-centered. I tell you, this week, I was looking at my own life and I was looking at these five words and they were like like lasers to the heart. Because not only do I preach it here to you, but I've already had to study it and preached it to myself. And that hurts. That hurts. Because it mitigates against everything about you and the serving of self. I mean, just think of the words themselves. Harmonious. Sympathetic. Brotherly, compassionate, humble. Now, if you heard those five words and then this, would this be true? Oh, yeah, those five words, yeah, that describes Lance Quinn. Oh, that describes me. Oh, you, you mean to say that those five words, when someone used them in a context that they actually mentioned my name? They, they actually were describing me? That's what they told you? were the attributes of my life? That's what Peter says. That's what we're to be to sum up finally. I want you to bow your heads with me. And as you do, I want you to ask yourself the question that I have posed this morning. Is this me? Is this my life? Do I live in such a way that someone by these five attributes, these five virtues, would be actually describing me? Are these things true of me? Oh, for some of us, we might be able to say, well, I have been compassionate towards someone. I have loved other people to a degree. 
I have spoken or done something sympathetically toward another person. Yes, I've done that. But does, does this characterize me? Am I, am I known as a harmonious, sympathetic brother lover who is compassionate and who is one who is lowly of heart? Not thinking of themselves, but thinking of others. Is, is this ever growing in my life? Can I say with quiet confidence in my own soul with no one else looking or listening? This is my desire for myself and my relationships with others. I want to serve people like this. I want to serve with this heart. Oh Lord, please forgive us for being so self-centered. For not responding to You as we ought. Lord Jesus, we take our cue from You who was humble, meek, compassionate, harmonious, sympathetic, and You loved us all the way to the cross. We take our cues from You. Lord, forgive us when we selfishly say, I, I don't want to come to church. I'm tired. I don't, I don't want to serve right now. I, I want to be served. I want to have my own desires met. It seems as though I'm always meeting the desires of others. When am I going to be repaid? Lord, we confess those as attitudes opposite of this text. We ask that You would bring us low so that we might then be exalted. Lord, I pray for each one here that, that we would be this kind of servant so that we might be a, an attraction for the Gospel. I pray for anyone here who would honestly say to themselves this day, maybe for the first time ever, I don't know this life. I've been all about serving me. I, I've been all about what this life can offer to me. And I realize I have been full of me. And I see that the Gospel means that it is to be the death of me. Lord, I pray for our congregation that we would be known as ones who love each other fervently, sincerely from the heart. May this be our testimony to a watching world. Pray in His name. Amen.